0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihira Zazan.
1: And I'm Khalil Bendi. This week we remember Edward Said, one of the most eloquent voices of all the Palestinian people, who passed away on September 25,
2: 2003. Gramsci, in the prison notebooks, says something that has always tremendously appealed to me, that history deposits in us our own history, our family's history, our nation's history, our tradition's history, which has left in us an infinity of traces, all kinds of marks, you know, through heredity, through collective experience, through individual experience, through family experience, through relations between one individual and another. A whole book, if you like, a series of an infinity of traces, but there's no inventory, There's there's no orderly guide to it. So Gramsci says, therefore, the task at the outset is to try to compile an inventory. In other words, to try and make sense of it.
1: We will listen to Professor Saeed speaking about his seminal work, Orientalism. Later in the program, we'll speak with Dina Nassar, artistic director of the Arab Film Festival, about this year's program. Stay with us.
0: September 25th marked the 14th anniversary of the passing of Professor Edward Said, a post-colonial scholar and public figure who permanently changed the conversation about Western imperialism and the West-Orientalist gaze towards the East. Today we remember Edward Said by listening to him speaking about his seminal work, Orientalism, which critiques the racism of the West, historical and cultural perception of the Middle East.
3: When future scholars take a look back at the intellectual history of the last quarter of the 20th century, the work of Professor Edward Said of Columbia University will be identified as very important and influential. In particular, Said's 1978 book, Orientalism, will be regarded as profoundly significant. Orientalism revolutionized the study of the Middle East, and helped to create and shape entire new fields of study such as postcolonial theory as well as influencing disciplines as diverse as english history anthropology political science and cultural studies the book has now been translated into 26 languages and is required reading at many universities and colleges it is also one of the most controversial scholarly books of the last 30 years sparking intense debate and disagreement Orientalism tries to answer the question of why when we think of the Middle East for example we have a preconceived notion of what kind of people live there what they believe how they act even though we may never have been there or indeed even met anyone from there more generally Orientalism asks how do we come to understand people strangers who look different to us by virtue of the color of their skin the central argument of Orientalism is that the way we acquire this knowledge is not innocent or objective but the end result of a process that reflects certain interests that is it is highly motivated specifically Said argues that the way the West Europe and the US looks at the countries and peoples of the Middle East is through a lens that distorts the actual reality of those places and those people he calls this lens through which we view that part of the world orientalism a framework that we use to understand the unfamiliar and the strange to make the peoples of the Middle East appear different and threatening Professor Saeed's contribution to how we understand this general process of what we could call stereotyping has been immense the aim of this program is to explore these issues through an interview with him he starts by discussing the context within which he conceived Orientalism well, my interest in Orientalism
2: began um, for, for two reasons. One was an immediate thing, that is to say, the, the Arab-Israeli War of 1973, which, which had been preceded by a lot of images and discussions in the media and the popular press, you know, about how the Arabs are cowardly and they don't know how to fight and they're, you know, always going to be beaten because they're not modern and then everybody was very surprised when the Egyptian army crossed the canal in early October of 1973 and demonstrated that, you know, like anybody else, they could fight. Uh, so that, that was one immediate impulse. And the second one, which is a, has a much longer history in my own life, was, was the constant um, sort of disparity I felt between what my experience of being an Arab was and the representations of that that one saw in art I mean, I'm I'm talking about very great artists, you know, like Delacroix, and Ingres, and Jérôme, and people like that. Novelists who wrote about the Orient, you know, like uh, Disraeli or Flaubert. And, you know, the fact that those representations of the Orient had very little to do with what I knew about my own background in life. So I decided to write the history of that. If somebody, let's say, in the 1850s or 60s in Paris or London wished to talk about or read about India, or Egypt, or Syria, there would be very little chance for that person to simply um, address the subject, uh, as we like to think, in a kind of free and creative way. A great deal of writing had gone before. And this writing was an organized form of writing, like an organized science, you know, what what I've called Orientalism. And it seemed to me that uh, there was a kind of repertory of images that kept coming up, you know, the sensual woman who's there to be sort of used by the man. The East is a kind of mysterious place full of secrets and monsters, you know, the marvels of the East was a phrase that we've used. And the more I looked, the more I saw that this was really quite consistent with itself. You know, it had very little to do with people who had actually been there. And even if they had been there, there wasn't much modification. In other words, you didn't get what you could call realistic representations of the Orient, either in literature or in painting or in music or uh, any of the arts. And this extended even further into descriptions of the Arabs by experts, you know, people who had uh, studied them. And I I noticed that even in the 20th century some of the same images that you found in the uh, 19th century amongst scholars like Edward William Lane who wrote his book on the modern Egyptians in in the early 1830s and then you read somebody in in the 1920s and they're more or less saying the same thing. One great example that I always give is that uh, the wonderful French poet Gerard de Nerval who went on a voyage to the Orient, as he called it. And I was reading this book of his travels in Syria, and there was something very familiar about it. You know, it sounded like something else that I'd read. And then I realized that what he was doing almost unconsciously was quoting Lane on the Egyptians, on the theory that the Orientals are all the same, no matter where the, where you find them. I mean, if it's in India or in Syria or in Egypt, it's basically the same essence. So there develops a kind of image of the timeless Orient, as if the Orient unlike the West doesn't develop it stays the same and that's one of the problems with Orientalism is it, it is it creates uh, an image outside of history of something that is placid and still and you know eternal which is simply contradicted by the facts of history you see so that's so in, that, in that one sense it's a it's a creation of of you might say an ideal other for for Europe
3: Professor Said's analysis of Orientalism isn't just a description of its content, but a sustained argument for why it looks the way it does. It's an examination of the quite concrete historical and institutional context that creates it. Specifically, Said locates the construction of Orientalism within the history of imperial conquest. As empires spread across the globe, historically the British and the French have been the most important in terms of the East, they conquer not only militarily but also what we could call ideologically the question for these empires is how do we understand the natives that we are encountering so we can conquer and subdue them easier this process of using large abstract categories to explain people who look different whose skin is a different color has been going on for a long time as far back as there's been contact between different cultures and peoples but orientalism makes this general process more formal in that it presents itself as objective knowledge. Said identifies Napoleon's conquest of Egypt in 1798 as marking a new kind of imperial and colonial conquest that inaugurates the project of Orientalism.
2: There was a kind of break that occurred after Napoleon came to Egypt in 1798. Uh, I think it's the first really important imperial, modern imperial expedition. So he invades the place, but he doesn't invade it the way the Spaniards invaded the New World, looking for loot. He comes instead with an enormous army of soldiers, but also scientists, botanists, architects, philologists, uh, biologists, historians, whose job it was to record Egypt in every conceivable way and produce a kind of scientific survey of Egypt which was designed not for the Egyptian, but for the European, and of course, what strikes you first of all about the volumes that they produced are: is their enormous size? They're a, a meter square, uh, and all across them is written the power and prestige of a modern European country that can do to the Egyptians what the Egyptians cannot do to the French. I mean, there's no comparable Egyptian survey of France. To produce knowledge, you have to have the power to be there and to see, in expert ways, things that the natives themselves can't see. The differences between different kinds of Orientalisms are, in effect, the differences between different experiences of what is called the Orient. I mean, the difference between Britain and France, on the one hand, and the United States, on the other, is that Britain and France had colonies in the Orient. I mean, they had a long-standing uh, relationship and imperial uh, role in a place like India. You know? So that there's a kind of a uh, there's a kind of a archive of actual experiences of being in India, of ruling the country for several hundred years, right? and the same with the French in North Africa, let's say Algeria or Indochina, uh, direct colonial experience. In the case of the Americans, the experience is much less direct. I mean, there's never been an American occupation of the Near East. So I would say the difference between British and French Orientalism on the one hand and the American experience of the Orient on the other is that the American one is much more... um, Indirect, it's much more based on abstractions. The second big thing, I think, that differs in the American experience from the British and the French of Orientalism is that American Orientalism is very politicized by the presence of Israel, for which America is the main ally.
1: And President Clinton and I are proud, as are all Americans. ...that the United
4: States was the first nation to recognize the state of Israel. Eleven minutes
1: after you proclaimed your independence.
2: And what you have, in effect, is the creation of a Jewish state... ...in the middle of the Islamic Oriental world. And the sense that because it's it's a Jewish state and a Western state, self-declared... ...there is a greater coincidence between American interests there than there is between American interests, let's say, in places like Iran and Saudi Arabia, which are important because of oil. I think the presence of of this other factor, which is very anti Islamic, where Israel regards the whole Arab world as its enemy, is imported into into American orientalism. I mean the idea, for example, that Hamas terrorists on the West Bank are just interested in killing Jewish children, is what you derive from looking at this stuff, and very little attention is paid to the fact that the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza has been going on for thirty—it's lo- thirty years. It's the longest military occupation in this century, and so you get the impression that the only problem is that you know Israeli security is threatened by Hamas and suicide bombs and all the rest of it, and nothing is said about the mi- hundreds of thousands, millions of Palestinians who are dispossessed and living miserable lives as the direct result of what Israel has done and is doing. So there's a sense in which the Arab struggle for national independence and in the case of the Palestinians for national self-determination is looked at with great hostility as upsetting the stabilities of the status quo and that makes it virtually impossible it's a tragedy virtually impossible for an American to see on television to read books to see films about the Middle East that are not colored politically by this by this conflict in which the Arabs are almost always play the role of terrorists and violent uh people and irrational and so on and so forth
1: that's that's another thing that America really needs to think about is our racism racism that comes from the United States towards Muslim people and towards Arabic people, and that's something that has to stop. And the United States has to start respecting people from the
4: Middle East in order to find a solution to the problem that's been building up over many
1: years. So I thank everyone for, uh, for your patience and letting me speak
3: my mind on that. Many people believe the way that Americans understand the Muslim world is very problematic. Indeed, anti-Arab racism seems to be almost officially sanctioned. You can make generalized and racist statements about Arab peoples that would not be tolerated for any other group. At the heart of how this new American Orientalism operates is the threatening and demonized figure of the Islamic terrorist that is emphasized by journalists and Hollywood. Now, Saeed recognizes that terrorism exists as a result of the violent political situation in the Middle East, but he argues that there is a lot more going on there that is misunderstood or not seen by the peoples of the West. The result of the media's focus on one negative aspect alone means that all the peoples of the Islamic world come to be understood in the same negative and paranoid way. That is, as a threat. So that when we think of people who look like that and who come from that part of the world, we think fanatic, extreme, violent. Saeed argues that understanding a vast and complex region like the Middle East in this narrow way takes away from the humanity and diversity of millions of ordinary people living decent and humane lives there.
5: We
4: asked, would he plant a bomb to blow up the Americans if the Islamic underground asked him to? The answer was yes.
2: After I'd written Orientalism and a book called The Question of Palestine in the early 80s, uh, in the late 70s rather, and beginning of the 80s, I wrote a third book, which is called Covering Islam, and I thought of them as a kind of trilogy. And Covering Islam was an account... Of the coverage of Islam in the popular media, immediately occasioned by uh, by the Iranian Revolution, which described itself, as you recall, as an Islamic revolution, and you know what I discovered was a huge uh, um, arsenal of images employed by the media: large masses of people waving their fists, black banners. Uh, you know the stern faced Khomeini, uh, all of them giving an impression of the utmost negative sort of evil emanation, so the impression you got of Islam was that it was a frightening uh, um, mysterious uh, above all threatening as if the main business of Muslims was to threaten and try to kill Americans as recently as uh, last year in one thousand nine hundred and ninety six that is say almost 16 or 17 years after I wrote Covering Islam, I did an update of the book. And I wrote a new introduction. Um, and I found, quite to my horror and surprise, that during those 16 or 17 years, with the large number of events in the Islamic world taking place, which you would think would allow for more familiarity with a more refined sense of what was taking place on, let's say, as reflected in television and um, uh, print journalism in fact was the opposite I-, I think the situation got worse and that what you had instead now is a much more threatening picture of Islam represented for example by a television film called jihad in America based on the bombing of the World Trade Center
4: I have reported an international terrorism for the past 10 years And since the World Trade Center bombing, I've been investigating the networks of Islamic extremists committed to jihad in America. For these militants, jihad is a holy war, an armed struggle to defeat non-believers or infidels, and their ultimate goal is to establish an Islamic empire. But this gathering did not take place in the Middle East. It happened in the heartland of America, Kansas City, Missouri. Combating these groups within the boundaries of the Constitution will be the greatest challenge to law enforcement since the war on organized crime.
2: But n- never the same generalizations were made, let's say, about the Oklahoma uh, City bombing, that this was a Christian fundamentalist, et cetera, et cetera. But the Islamic Jihad had come to America and you had these scenes of the, m- of the most irresponsible journalism where you'd see people talking in Arabic and then a voiceover saying, and they're discussing the destruction of America. Yeah. Whereas if you picked up a little of what was being said, if you knew the language, it had nothing to do with that and that Islam and the teachings of Islam became synonymous with terror and the demonization of Islam uh, allowed for very little distinction between piety let's say and violence the so-called independent media in a liberal society like this in effect are so lazy and are controlled by interests that are commercial and political at the same time that there there is no investigative reporting it's just basically repeating the line of the government
1: only eight days ago I concluded a broadcast on the World Trade Center bombing by telling you what senior US law enforcement officials were telling us that the threat of Muslim extremists operating within the United States is an ongoing danger something we'll have to live with from now on
2: and repeating the lines of the people who have the most influence for whom Islam is a useful uh, foreign uh, demon to turn attention away from the inequities and problems in our own society. So, as a result, the human side of the Islamic and, and especially Arabic world are rarely to be found. Uh, and, and the net result is this vacancy, on the one hand, and these easy, almost automatic images of terror and violence. There is a handy set of images and cliches you know, not just from the newspapers and the television, but from movies.
5: Oh, I come from a land, from a faraway place, where the caravan camels roll. Where it's flat and immense, and the heat
1: is intense, it's barbaric, but hey, it's home. When the wind's from the east, and the sun's from the west, and the sand and the glass is bright, Come on down, stop on by, hop a carpet and
2: fly, to another Arabian night. I mean I, I mean, I myself, growing up in the Middle East, in Palestine and Cairo, used to delight in films on the Arabian Nights, you know, done by Hollywood producers, you know, with John Hall and Maria Montez and Sabu. I mean, they were talking about a part of the world that I lived in, but it had this kind of exotic, uh, magical quality, which was w- w- what we call today Hollywood. So there was that whole repertory of the sheiks and the desert and the galloping around and the scimitars and the dancing girls and all that. That was that's really the material. The situation in the popular media is is basically that Muslims are really two things: one, they're villains of one sort, villains and fanatics.
3: I will dispatch the American people to the hell they deserve.
2: And B, many films end up with huge numbers of bodies, Muslim bodies strewn all over the place, the result of Arnold Schwarzenegger or Demi Moore, Chuck Norris, lots of films about guerrillas going in to kill uh, Muslim terrorists. So So the idea of Islam is something that to be... Stamped out. Enter, enter. <laughs> the whole history of these Orientalist representations, which which portrayed the Muslim and the Orientalists as in effect a lesser breed. In other words, they're be- the only thing they understand is the language of force. This is, this is the principle here, that unless you give them a bloody nose, they won't understand. We can't talk reason with them. Is the Arab world full of, of terrorists? Well, I mean, all you have to do is sort of break down the question into, into common sense... ...and say, uh, there are terrorists, as there are everywhere. But, you know, there's a lot more going on there. I mean, we're talking about 250, 300 million people. And one of the great problems with Orientalism to begin with is these vast generalizations about Islam and the nature of Islam. I mean, there's very little uh, in common that you can talk about as Islam, let's say, between Indonesia and Saudi Arabia. I mean, they're both Muslim countries, but, you know, the difference is in history and language and... Uh, traditions and so on are so vast that the word Islam has, at best, a tenuous meaning. Um, The same is true within the Arab world. I mean, Morocco is very different from Saudi Arabia, Algeria is very different from Egypt. And I would argue, in fact have argued, that the predominant uh, mood of the Arab world is very secular, Uh, you know. It's easy to attract attention and certainly the media's attention for some of the political reasons that are obvious. I mean, to discredit the Arabs, to make them seem like a threat to the West, uh, to keep uh, the idea around at the end of the Cold War that, you know, there are uh, foreign devils. Otherwise, what, what are we doing with this gigantic military? You know, uh, this huge military budget that is twice as much as an entire world's military budget combined. Uh, so you have to have s- threat. And the result is, uh, th- it's very hard to find works that are sympathetic to the Arabs in Islam. Islam is seen as the enemy of Christianity, and the United States sees itself as a Christian or Judeo-Christian country in affiliation with Israel, and that Islam is the great enemy, the, the, the competitor. There's a, there's a history of that. And I give the example of Dodi Fayad, you know, the uh, erstwhile uh, uh, suitor of Princess Diana. Well, a few days before he died, I read through uh, the the English press, and it was full of the racist clichés of Orientalist discourse. I mean, that this is... The Sunday Times, one of the leading newspapers in England, had a headline to a 15,000-word story entitled A Match Made in Mecca. And the idea of Muslim conspiracies trying to infect, you know, taking over this white woman by these dark people, with Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad, who is... Uh, um, uh, ...historical personage of the 7th century, somehow stage managing the whole thing. That's the power of the discourse, you see. Th- if you're thinking about people and Islam and about that part of the world, those are the words you constantly have to use.
0: And you won't get hurt! I give you my word!
2: No way, you wacko! So discourse is a regulated system of producing knowledge within certain constraints whereby certain rules have to be observed.
4: Okay, Libya, exports. Yes, sir, you American pig.
2: <laughs> nice touch. To think past it, to go beyond it, not to use it, is virtually impossible because there's no knowledge that isn't codified in this way about that part of the world. May I help you? The <laughs>
1: Wabushnia, listen to the sound Jesus. of our
4: talk.
2: And there's a certain sense in which, in in not really mounting a serious critique of it, uh, the Arabs have participated and have and continue to allow themselves to be represented as Orientals in this Orientalist way. Um, There is no, for example, information policy of the 20 Arab countries, 22 Arab countries, uh, to try to give a different picture of what their worlds are like, because most of them are dictatorships, all of them are dictatorships without democracy, who are in desperate need of US patronage, government patronage, to support them. And so they're not about to criticize the United States, uh, not about to engage in a a real dialogue. Uh, and and in that respect I think the Arabs keep themselves uh, collectively in a way that is uh, that is subordinate to and uh, and inferior to the West and in fact fulfills the kinds of representations that most Westerners have in their minds about the Arabs
5: The attack came without warning, and according to a U.S. government source, told CBS News that it has Middle East terrorism written all over it
4: the attack in Oklahoma City appears to have a familiar mark. This was done with the attempt to inflict as many casualties as possible. That is a Middle Eastern trait. The fact that it was such a powerful bomb in Oklahoma City immediately drew investigators to consider deadly parallels that all have roots in the Middle East. ABC News has learned that the FBI has asked the U.S. military to provide up to ten Arabic speakers to help in the investigation.
2: Well, one of the interesting things about about the persistence of Orientalism, um, I mean, almost, when you think about it, almost astonishing persistence of it is, was the Oklahoma City bombing in, 19, in April of 1995. I, I can give you a personal example. I was in Canada giving some lectures at, at the actual time of the bombing, and maybe half an hour after the event had occurred in the afternoon, my office was inundated with phone calls from the media. And um, I rang my office from Canada, as I frequently do, to find out you know, how, if there was any message for me that needed attention and so on. And she said, every 25 calls had come in from the major networks, from the cable channels, from the major newspapers, news magazines, and so on and so forth, all of them wanting to talk to you. And I said, what about, about this event in Oklahoma City? And I said, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, apparently, somebody had volunteered, one of these instant commentators, that the notion that this seemed like a Middle East-style bombing and that there were a couple of swarthy people around right after the bombing or seen after the bombing.
4: Within hours of the explosion, local police and the FBI had issued the all-points bulletin looking for three men, believed to be of Middle Eastern origin. And sources tell CBS News that unofficially, the FBI is treating this as a Middle Eastern-related incident. Oklahoma City, I can tell you, is probably considered one of the largest centers of Islamic radical activity outside the Middle East.
2: And so this got them to think. ...that they should talk to me, not because I had anything to do with it... ...but because by virtue of being from the Middle East I would have an inside uh, insight into this. You know, and of course the the proposition is so preposterous and so racist... ...that just if you're from the area you would understand who and why this is being done. Never thinking for a moment that it was a local homegrown boy called McVeigh... ...who was, you know, totally American in his outlook... ...and was doing it out of the best principles of American extermination. And Ahab like anger, you know, at the world.
3: Professor Saeed is not only a literary theorist, he is also a very prominent and active representative of the Palestinian people. Saeed grew up in what was then called Palestine and is now called Israel and the occupied territories. When the State of Israel was founded in 1948, like millions of other Palestinians, Saeed and his family were made homeless as well as stateless. These exiled Palestinians now mostly live either in the territories under the control of Israel or in refugee camps in the surrounding countries. One of the things that drives Saeed is the quest for justice and a homeland for the Palestinian people. And there's a close connection between Saeed's intellectual work and his political activism. As he himself remarks, he wrote three books that he thinks of as a trilogy and that in his mind are closely connected together. Orientalism, Covering Islam, and The Question of Palestine. He believes that finding a peaceful, humane, and just solution to the conflicts in the Middle East, that is, finding an answer to The Question of Palestine, will require overcoming the racist legacy of Orientalism that stresses the separation of people from each other, That regards difference as a threat that must be contained or destroyed. Because of the complex and bloody history of the Middle East, Saeed regards the situation in Palestine and Israel as the ultimate test case facing the 21st century of whether we live together in peace and reconciliation with our differences or whether we live apart in fear and loathing of each other, constantly under threat, constantly at war. In seeking a way out of this legacy of mistrust and conflict, Saeed draws upon the work of Italian philosopher Antonio Gramsci, who gives us the tools to think about these difficult issues in more productive and humane ways.
2: Well Gramsci in the prison notebooks says something that has always tremendously appealed to me: that history deposits in us our own history, our family's history, our nation's history, our traditions' history which has left in us an infinity of traces, all kinds of marks, you know, through heredity, through collective experience, through individual experience, through family experience, through relations between one individual and another, a whole book, if you like, a series of an infinity of traces, but there's no inventory, There's there's no orderly guide to it. So Gramsci says, therefore the task at the outset is to try to compile an inventory, in other words to try and make sense of it. And this seems to me, to me at any rate, to be the the most interesting sort of human task. It's the task of interpretation, Uh, it's the task of giving history some shape and sense, for a particular reason, not just to to show that my history is better than yours, or my history is worse than yours, I'm a victim and you're uh, somebody who's oppressed people and so on, but rather, to understand my history in terms of other people's history. In other words, to try to understand, to, gener- to move beyond, to generalize one's own individual experience to the experience of others. And I think, um, I think the great uh, goal is in fact to become someone else, to transform itself from a unitary identity to an identity that includes the other without suppressing the difference. That, he says, is the great goal. And, 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 and for me, I think, I think that, that would be the case, you know. Uh, and that would be the, the notion of writing an inventory, uh, a historical inventory, which would not only to understand oneself, but to understand oneself in relation to others, and to understand others as if you would understand yourself. Palestine is so important in this respect um, because of its local... Uh, complexities. Let us say, Arabs and Jews, Arab Muslims and Arab Christians, and and Israeli Jews of themselves very mixed backgrounds. I mean, we're talking about Polish Jews, Russian Jews, American Jews, Yemeni Jews, Iraqi Jews, Indian Jews. It's a it's a fairly complex mosaic. Somehow finding a way to live together on a land that is drenched, saturated with significance on a world scale unlike any other country in the world. I mean, it's holy to three of the major religions, and every inch of it has been combed over and fought over for the last several thousand years. And the pattern so far has been the Zionist pattern, which is to say that, you know, it's promised to us, we're the chosen people, everybody else is sort of second-rate, throw them out, or treat them as second-class citizens. And in contrast to that, Uh, Some of us, not everybody, but many Palestinians have said, well, we realize that we are being asked to pay the price for what happened to the Jews in Europe under the Holocaust. It was an entirely Christian and European catastrophe in which the Arabs played no part. And we are being dispossessed, displaced by uh, by the victims. We've become the victims of the victims. But as I say, not all of us say, well, they should be thrown out. Because we have been thrown out, and so we have another vision, which is a vision of coexistence, in which Jew and Arab, Muslim, Christian, and and Jew, can live together in some polity, which I think it requires a kind of cre- creativity and and invention uh, that is possible. Vision um, that would replace the authoritarian, hierarchical model. But this idea that somehow we should protect ourselves against the infiltrations, the infections of the other is, I think, the most dangerous idea uh, at the end of the 20th, 20th century. And uh, unless we find ways to do it, and there are no, there are no shortcuts to it, um, unless we find ways to do this, I, you know, there's going to be wholesale violence of the sort uh, represented by the Gulf War, by the killings in Bosnia, the Rwandan massacres, and so on. I mean, those are the patterns. Uh, of emerging conflict that is extremely dangerous and needs to be cu- counteracted, and, and I think therefore it's correct to say that the challenge now is, is the challenge. I, I, I wouldn't call it um, anything other than coexistence. How do, how does one coexist with people whose religions are different, whose uh, traditions and languages are different, but who are who form part of the same community or polity, in a national sense? Uh, how do we accept difference without violence and hostility. I've been interested in a field called comparative literature most all of my adult life and the the ideal of comparative literature is not to show how English literature is really a secondary phenomenon in French literature or Arabic literature is you know a kind of poor cousin to Persian literature or any of those silly things but to show them existing you might say as contrapuntal lines in a great composition by which difference is respected and understood without uh, without coercion. And it's that attitude I think that we need.
0: Professor Edward Said was a public intellectual and author of many books including his seminal work Orientalism. He passed away on September 25th 2003. To read more about Professor Said's work, please visit jadmagazine.com. The Arab Film Festival opens in the Bay Area on Friday, October 13th, and it will be showing films in San Francisco, Oakland, and Berkeley through October 22nd. This year's festival features a short film series on the refugee crisis, a series focused on Saudi films and a range of other topics spanning from media representation of the Palestinians to surfing. Khalil Bendib spoke with the Arab Film Festival's artistic director Dina Nassar about the festival and its expansion to include dates in Los Angeles.
5: For at least the last 8 to 10 years there has been a Los Angeles showcase if you will. And and it's still primarily a 3-day event. We have expanded our programming a bit, but it's it's a 3-day Mini festival, mini showcase that takes place after the extended run in San Francisco. And the idea here is really that, you know, there's a large Arab audience here in Los Angeles that happens to be here right now at the moment. But also, we found that there is a lot of interest from industry professionals in learning about Arab film and Arab film markets. And, you know, with the launch of the Arab Film and Media Institute, it just makes sense that we start to expand our audience
1: reach a bit of course it makes perfect sense it's a great idea i used to be in la for many years and there's a strong arab community there and a lot of people as you said who are not even from the community who are interested in arab culture and arab cinema yeah
5: exactly
1: in terms of sponsors it must also make things easier to get many more possibilities
5: yeah absolutely there are a lot of non-profit organizations and restaurants and businesses that like to extend their support and also, uh, you know, film societies down here that also are happy to collaborate and partner up with us. So it's been great.
1: Is there any institutional support from government organizations here in this country?
5: No, not to my knowledge. No, not at this time. I know that you know there are a number of arts and culture grants and I you know we hope one day that we're sensing of, of something like
2: this So that hasn't happened
1: right hap- hasn't happened yet. You haven't received any such support or are you receiving some? I'm just curious.
5: No, yeah. no, no. I don't believe we are.
1: Hmm. How many countries are represented in this edition of the film festival?
5: This festival we have 28 countries represented. And that includes Middle Eastern countries and European, North American, places where Arabs are living outside of the Middle East.
1: So places in the diaspora as well. Yeah, exactly. I'm always interested, coming from Algeria myself and having lived both in Morocco and Algeria, I'm always interested in the North Africa contingent. How well represented is it this year?
5: You know, we do have one of my favorite films this year is a film out of Algeria. It's Mm. a documentary called Investigating Paradise. And it follows a journalist who investigates the sort of like Salafi ideology and its influence on youth culture in Algeria. And she diligently demystifies and debunk a lot of stereotypes and conceptions about Islamic text and tradition, and it's a really powerful documentary. I recommend it.
1: Give us an example or two of these misconceptions she debunks.
5: Well, for example, the idea of the 72 virgins. She talks to Islamic scholars and Islamic feminist scholars, and and then it takes a look at how this idea is used as a device by certain TV personalities to gain control of, and kind of control the narrative of the slam. And so that's just like one example of that. And the film goes a lot deeper as well. And then in terms of other films, there's a great short film out of Morocco called Kindle. And it's our first ever sort of sci-fi film. It's a film about, I guess there's a mythical creature sort of in Morocco called The Kindle. And then if I had to describe, it resembles closely to A Mermaid and you kind of follow this family. It's, it's a sad story, but it's a powerful one about this woman who becomes a mermaid or becomes this kindle in yeah. the ocean.
1: I, I may have seen Is this a, a recent one, or is that something yes, that's been around? yeah, about?
5: it is recent.
1: Because I saw another Moroccan film about a similar theme, but that was years ago. Egypt, for many decades, was the powerhouse of Arab film in general. Uh, what about Egyptian movies in this festival?
5: We have some pretty good Egypt representation this year. Two features that I can think of off the bat. One is called the Nile Hilton Incident, and this is a crime drama, which we haven't had, basically at the onset of the Arab Spring, so right before the ousting of Mubarak, and it's a fiction, and it follows a police policeman, a corrupt policeman, who's investigating a crime and realizes that the conspiracy goes all the way up to the highest levels of government.
1: Tunisian movies, anything inspired by the Jasmine revolution there, the struggle for democracy, anything like that?
5: You know, actually, we did have a film that came to us from Tunisia, but unfortunately, it did not make our, our final lineup. It's always so difficult to decide the films. the hardest part. And we're very lucky that we're at a place where... We have to reject good films. (laughs) It's It's a nice problem to
1: have, yeah. I noticed you had a couple, at least uh, two films about LGBT issues. I mean, not necessarily just about that, but that were highlighting stories about a gay person. Tell me about these films.
5: One is a documentary called Here I Am, Here You Are. And it has a different title in Italian, and it's essentially about an Arab man who is gay, who has his partner lives in Italy, and he, he actually is with him in Italy. And the documentary examines the sort of different challenges that each society has to deal with in terms of gay rights and the ability to kind of live and exist completely free. So it looks at the differences and the similarities and the and the tension and and the struggle that these two people face simply trying to be together. And the second film is a film called In Between and it takes place it's three Palestinian women living in Tel Aviv and they are, you know, living very independent, very strong In one way, Mm. but they're all individually struggling with some sort of identity issue. And one of the characters is a lesbian and she is wanting to come out to her parents and she's having a difficult time. But she has the support of her two roommates and her friends. And it's a really lovely story. Female director, all female leads. And it's a really well-written, beautifully told story about friendship.
1: There are also, of course, uh, huge stories in the past few years. One major source of sadness and inspiration is what's been going on in Syria, the plight of refugees coming from the Middle East and trying to make their way to Europe. I see that you have five documentaries on that issue. Tell me more about those.
5: Yeah, we have... A lot of Syrian content this year, and if you have any desire, interest to expose yourself to the Syrian issue from the point of view of artists, documentary filmmakers, I recommend the following films: In Syria, which is a, a narrative feature which follows the life of a family living under siege for 24 hours in Syria. And then we have two documentaries. One is called The Art of Moving, which is a documentary series that follows a group of actors and activists who do these sketch comedy bits about ISIS to delegitimize ISIS Mm -hmm. in popular culture. And then the other one is called The War Show, which follows a group of radio hosts who are covering what their life is like in Syria. It's one of our more powerful documentaries this season, I would say. And then we also have a refugee shorts program. I want to highlight the refugee shorts program that's going to be taking place at the New Parkway on Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. This features not only Syrian refugee stories, but also refugee stories from Palestine. It follows several different characters, and it will be followed by a panel with the IRC, International Refugee Committee, Mm -hmm. and it should be a great show. And then there's also another one, which is called Taste of Cement, which is about a Palestinian refugee father who is in Lebanon, which is also very beautifully shot and well-made. So there's definitely a lot of content that follows refugees, and some of the more urgent political crises, and humanitarian crises that are happening right now, unfortunately.
1: Yes. I don't know if this is the one you were just mentioning. You have an archive-based documentary on the Palestinian people's struggle to produce self-representation. Yes, that's
5: called Off-Frame. Off-Frame. Yeah, hmm. Off-Frame, which looks at the history of occupation through archival footage.
1: And finally, the Gulf countries have been making a push Past few years to get into the film business. Anything special from them in this festival?
5: Yeah, I'm so excited. So, we have sprinkles of films from the Gulf in our shorts program, but I'm really excited to share with you guys that we have a Saudi showcase this year. And this Saudi showcase will feature three films one short film called Yellow, it's about cab drivers in Saudi Arabia, and then another film. Called Wasati, which is a fictionalized short based off of a real-life event that happened, the first attempt to stage a theater play in Saudi Arabia, Um, and it's a comedy, and then it's followed by a short feature called Medayan, and Medayan is, if you can imagine, like Blair Witch Project taking place in Saudi ruins, and it's sort of a mockumentary, and it's very creative. And we're really happy to showcase this program because, as you mentioned, the Gulf is really stepping up their game. And it gives us a chance to really connect with Saudi youth in a way that I don't think we have historically seen in the past. You know, I will say that this film series does not have as many women featured as we'd like. But it's a step, and we need to start this step and encourage this direction for Saudi Arabia because it's just a matter of time.
0: Dina Nassar is the artistic director for the 2017 Arab Film Festival. The festival will be running in the Bay Area from October 13th to October 22nd. For more information, visit Vomina.org. That's Vomina.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Arts Connection presents Let Her Sing, a celebration of female vocalists, on Saturday, October 28th at the Marines Memorial Theater in San Francisco. Ten female vocalists, a choir, and a group of musicians come together on October 28th to celebrate the female voice suppressed, censored, and threatened in some parts of the world. Diaspora Arts Connection will showcase unique and much-loved female vocalists from Iran and Afghanistan, including Abjiz, Marjan Farsad, Mima Gudars, Mamak Khadem, Ostad Mahbash from Afghanistan, and many more. Here is a song by the very talented sister duo Abjiz called Crossing Borders. A celebration of female vocalist concert will take place on Saturday, October 28th at the Marines Memorial Theater, located at 609 Sutter Street, 2nd Level in San Francisco. For ticket information, please check out cityboxoffice.org. Confidence begins to fade. My steps feel slow.
1: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.